Take your Bibles this morning to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. Well, we've been looking through the book of Exodus. We've seen Moses go through a lot. And uh, I just think that when you think about some of the more well-known instances and stories of the Old Testament, you think about the story of Adam and Eve, or maybe Noah or Jonah. Uh, You could think of Cain and Abel, Joshua and Jericho, or Rahab the harlot. Uh, just so many very well-known, what we might call the the top ten Sunday school lessons. Uh, There's a lot more than ten. Even when you look at the life of Moses, uh, everything from the wicker basket to him killing somebody and living on the the backside of the desert for 40 years and how that God uh, used him to to bring the judgments upon Egypt. Uh, Just so many different well-known instances in in Moses's life. But this one, what we're going to look at this morning, does not get a lot of press. It just seems like it doesn't get very much uh, time in front of the children. It's not as as well known. But I'll tell you, this is a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, And when I say story, I mean it's history. I don't mean it's some made-up story, some fairy tale. What we're going to read about this morning actually happened. And I believe in some ways it can happen to you and I today as we learn how to reflect God's glory to a lost and dying world. You remember that this is Moses giving the, or excuse me, going back up to the mountain to get the second batch of commandments from God. He had come down, they've been worshiping the golden calf, And uh, he dropped them down to represent how that the the children of Israel, before they had even had a chance to read all the commandments, had broken nearly all of them. Uh, It was uh, just an incredible display of wickedness that was going on there. But God, in his infinite mercy, calls Moses back up and he gives them the uh, uh, um, second set of commandments. And here's where we kind of pick up our narrative. All right, let's look at Exodus 34, going all the way down to verse 29. And it came to pass when Moses came down from the Mount Sinai with the two tables of testimony in Moses' hand when he came down from the Mount, that Moses wist not that the skin of his face shone while he talked with him. And when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh him. And Moses called unto them, and Aaron and all the rulers of the congregation returned unto him, and Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the children of Israel came nigh, and he gave them in commandment all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. Until Moses had done speaking with them, he put a veil on his face. But when Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he took the veil off until he came out, And he came out and spake unto the children of Israel that which he was commanded. And the children of Israel saw the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face shone. And Moses put the veil upon his face again until he went in 
to speak with him. What an incredible event in the life of Moses. There's some things I think that lead up to Moses reflecting the glory of God to those around him. I want to look at just a few things in Moses' life, in his character, that help you to see how he comes to the place where he is literally reflecting God's glory from his face. Deuteronomy 9, 9 and Exodus 34 tells us that during the giving of both sets of commandments, the first time uh, he spent 40 days up there, then he goes back and verse 28 tells us uh, that he had fasted for 40 days, both in the first giving and the, the second giving. So the first thing I want you to see in Moses' character is his devotion toward God, his devotion. Those were two separate 40-day periods. That's 80 days. Now, remember, it wasn't a month between the time that he came down and the time that he went back up. He comes down, uh, he sees them sinning, he breaks it, and I don't know exactly how much time is given, but he executes God's judgment on them. God threatens not to go with them, and uh, then he relents and calls Moses back up to the mountain, and he fasts another 40 days. You don't fast 80 days without being dedicated to that cause. If you've experienced an extended fast or you know someone that, that has about day 35, all you can think about is food. That's one, uh, the one constant that your mind just won't let go, to, go of. When's my next meal? Or, or you know, do I smell something? You, you're, it seems like your senses are enhanced. And if you've ever seen someone that has fasted for an extended amount of time, uh, for several weeks, you will wonder if they're on chemotherapy. They'll look very gaunt. I don't know anyone that could survive back-to-back 40-day fasts and lived. But Moses communed with God 80 days without any physical sustenance. That was a miracle. I mean, God was working there, but the way that God works doesn't mean that Moses was never hungry. God's modus operandi does not remove the obstacles of us spending time with them, but instead we've got to overcome those obstacles and reap the benefits of spending time with God. Jesus would one day quote Moses from Deuteronomy 8.3, talking about how that man does not live by bread alone. Moses experienced that. He was not living just by bread, but by the, the word of God that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. One definition of devotion that I read said a profound dedication or consecration. Moses understood what it was to be devoted or consecrated to God. I'll just tell you, uh, well, let me just say this. By the way, fasting was an outward manifestation of an inward devotion. I don't think fasting makes us more spiritual. We fast because we want to commune with God already. And it sets everything else to the side. Outward conformity never leads to an inward conviction. You don't start doing something and then suddenly have a conviction about it because you were doing it. That's going the wrong way. We want God to work in our heart so that it manifests or makes itself publicly known to others through our life. 
We see that in the sporting world, don't we? I mean, people buy jerseys and memorabilia of their favorite teams, not to make themselves more devoted to that team. Do you understand that? They buy those things because there is an inward devotion and it is making or manifesting, making itself known publicly to those around them. I knew a man, uh, he owned his own business, a funeral home, and he bought six almost courtside tickets to a college university team every single year. I mean, they were premium seats, and he paid thousands of dollars uh, for these seats every year, not because he was hoping it would make him a better fan, but because he was already devoted to the team, and he had to find an outlet for that devotion. What about you? What are you devoted to? I mean, there's a lot of things in this world that we can devote our time and our life to. Rather than asking you what you're devoted to, I would rather you look at your calendar and, ask, and answer that question with the, the way you spent the most valuable quantity that we have in this world, and that is your time. What did you spend your time on this last week. That'll tell you what you're devoted to. Now, I understand uh, part of life is just involved with living. And so I'm not saying, you know, that we're not going to eat, that we're not going to sleep. But what about those few precious moments that we would call our time or the downtime? Just like Moses had to overcome some things in order to spend time with God, something that would demonstrate his uh, devotedness, his consecration to God, there may be some things, even good things, that we need to set aside in order to be devoted to God. Maybe just getting up a little bit earlier. We're going to get rid of some sleep in order to spend some time with God. It may be that we're going to put aside some hobby. Listen, as many different people that are here this morning could be as many varied answers on what it takes to be devoted to the Lord because we all have different interests. We all have different ways of spending our time. And so it's important that we go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is it and how can I show that I'm devoted to you? For some, it may be saying, listen, I'm, I'm going to start coming to churchwide soul winning. I'm going to look for an outlet of my devotion to God. Just like a man can spend thousands of dollars uh, on seats that, that, to play a game, how much more should we be devoted to the one true God who saved us through the Lord Jesus Christ? There should be some devotion in our lives, and it should be readily manifested or displayed to the rest of the world because we need an outlet to show how that our devotion to God is going to be lived out. Some people are devoted to their hobbies. Some people are devoted to their beds. Some people are devoted to their grades or their uh, uh, vocation. Some people are devoted to their spouses and their children. And I'm not saying any of those things are bad. Those aren't bad things to have a measure of devotion. They're good things to be devoted to. But no devotion that we have ought to be above our devotion to God. He must be paramount in our lives. Some people would say, well, listen, I, I'm in church. Or I, I'm in ministry in some way. 
or I serve the local church. I want to encourage you. We learned last year about dwelling in that secret place with the Lord. Moses' devotion to God led him to willingly deny himself in order to know God more intimately. I hope that you'd be willing to ask the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to you if there's something that is hindering you from being devoted. If there's some, something that is, is hindering your devotion to God. Now, I know some of you have given up some things because of your devotion to God. Job, ministry positions. I want to encourage you this morning to remember why you did those things. Because if we're not careful, we'll hear that little small quiet voice, and it's not the Lord this time, but it's that, that, that small quiet voice of doubt that says, oh, you've made a mistake. You didn't do the right thing. Because you'll have the whole world telling you when you make a decision for the Lord, it's, not, it's rarely the best financial decision that you can make. It's oftentimes a, a challenge, and it's going to be at some disadvantage, but that's the outlet that God lets you have for your devotion to Him. I just want to remind you why you did that. God has allowed you to be planted right where you are, and it's worth it. Above all, it is worth it to be walking with Him and to be serving Him. And if you want the glory of God to be reflected in your life, you must be devoted without reservation to the Almighty God of the Bible. Not only did Moses have devotion, he had a great dependence. Look at verse 15 of chapter 33. Go all the way back. We talked about this, but he said, And he said unto him, If thy presence go not with me, carry us not up hence. You remember that he was, he was telling, calling out to God and telling him that his dependence is on him. He said, I can't lead these people if you're not going with us. I don't want to go. I'm completely dependent upon you. I remember when our children were, were much younger. And you know if you have children at a certain age, they want to do everything by themselves. And one day we were leaving the house. And I'll, I won't tell you which one, but one of my sons... I didn't say my daughter. That would have been horrible, all right? But he was, I told him to put on his jacket, and I said, I'll, I'll get that jacket for you. And he said this. He says, no, I do it myself. I said, okay, well, let me grab it for you. And he said, no, I get it myself. Now, he was out of sight for probably less than a, a minute when I heard that familiar voice. Daddy! Right? You've heard that before. Now, what happened? Uh, I could see that uh, he was having a problem not getting it on. He couldn't even reach it to get it off the hook. I handed it to him, and after wrestling with it and fumbling around for just a minute, I asked him if he needed help, and he finally said yes. We were able to get the jacket on and leave. It was only after he acknowledged his own inability and clearly saw that his dependence was on me, his father, that I was able to give him any help. My friend, when we finally come to the place where we acknowledge our inability to serve God, when we come to the place where we realize that we are 
powerless, and only he can enable us, and only he can give us the power that we need to live a life that is pleasing to him, will we reflect God's glory to the world around us. Now listen, I could have pinned my son down. I mean, I could have put him in a headlock and got that jacket on him probably a lot quicker. It wasn't that I wasn't strong enough, but I wanted him to see his inability. And it's not that God can't use you. It's not that God can't put you in a spiritual headlock. But he wants you to see your inability so that you'll have a greater dependence on him. God allows us to go through trials and God allows things to to come into our lives not because he's punishing us. Even, listen, even when he is chastising us, it's for our benefit. It's so that we will walk back to him and that we'll be restored with him. God doesn't punish us. He utilizes these things to help us. But you say, well, listen, I'm right with God. Why does he still allow this into my life? And why am I going through this Trial, and sometimes God allows bad things, what we perceive to be bad things in our lives, simply so that we come to the end of ourselves. And we say, I need God. The world says, listen, when you come to the end of your rope, just tie a knot and use two hands and hold on tighter. God says, just let go and rest in my arms. We just sang this morning, leaning in the everlasting arms. That's what he wants from each and every one of us. What do you place your dependence? Is it your skill, your oratory ability, your organization? Do you solely rely on your intelligence or your cunning, your abilities? What areas of your life are you self-sufficient? Isn't that interesting? I don't know about women as much, but I know guys, we, we we section everything off. We have different places in our brain, and we can go to these places, and women, you know, I've heard it put this way. (coughs) excuse me, men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti, all right? Waffles, they have everything segmented off and we can just go to this thing and spaghetti just runs all together and women can be thinking about everything at the same time. Men are not like that. We're one trackers for the most part, okay? And so, but but my my, uh, purpose in saying that is that we can think that we are completely yielded, but it's only in this little section. We've got to look and say, listen, Are we completely dependent upon God? Not just for our salvation, but for our daily walk with Him. We will never have Holy Spirit empowerment if our dependence is on ourself. It'll never happen. God does not want us to show Him how much we can do. He wants us to admit our inability and allow him to work through us. I mean, I'm encouraged when when Paul talks about the the, uh, uh, foolish confounding the wise. It gives us a lot of hope, amen? But we say, oh, I'm glad I'm wise. No, what we just said is we're not really going to be used by God. And so every area of our life must be dependent upon God. Not just those in, in vocational ministry, 
although that's our responsibility to be dependent upon God. But we, no matter what ministry God gives us, it may not be vocational, but everyone in here today ought to have some ministry to someone else. We're serving others with our lives. I worked for a, a godly carpenter that ran his own business, and he ministered to the rough men that he employed. They would come to him and ask him to pray for family members, and I'll never forget Mike. He was a hard worker. He was knowledgeable about what his craft was, but he was not saved. And one day he came to John, the owner of the business, and during our 9.30 break, and asked him to pray for his mama who's in the hospital. She just wasn't doing that well. And so right there, in the middle of a job site, some of the roughest characters took off their hat, and John prayed for that man's mother to get out of the hospital. He was ministering to the needs of Mike, and every opportunity that he got, John would give a witness. Now, it wasn't every day, and it wasn't every break, but as God gave opportunity, John would witness to Mike. He had a ministry to those men. He was dependent upon God. He said, listen, I want to honor God with every aspect of my life, not just my church life, not just uh, my personal life, but even in my vocation, I want to honor God. And I'm going to be dependent upon Him for the results. By the way, John and his son Andy helped to put this flooring on up here. And I'm thankful for their testimony. Sometimes we use excuses, though. We say, well, I don't know what I would say in that instance. I don't know. I just can't. But listen, if that's your attitude, you're on the right track because it's not you and it's not your strength. But what it is is learning to rely and to abide in Christ and allowing His strength to work through us. I made partial reference to it earlier, but I want to read the verse, 1 Corinthians 1. 26 through 29, for you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world. And things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. What a powerful verse. That gives every one of us hope. Maybe you are wise, or maybe you might be uh, uh, mighty. He says he, he doesn't call many, but some are called. But for most of us, we can look at that and say, listen, I can identify with those that are weak. I can identify with those that are foolish sometimes, right? But God can still use us when we Depend upon Him. Just the same that God is not going to let us to get to heaven someday and say, God, look how good I was. In order to get here, we're not going to be able to get to heaven and say, God, look how much I did for you in my own strength. No, no, no. It's all about our dependence in Him, that no flesh should glory in His presence. You'll never be able to say, God, look what I did for you. It's going to be, Lord, thank you for what you were willing to do through me. Second Corinthians 3.5 says, Not that we are sufficient of ourselves to think anything as of ourselves, but our sufficiency is of God. We're going to look at that a little bit more tonight because he actually talks about Moses and what is veiled. And it's very interesting, Lord willing, we'll talk about that tonight. But I want you to see that there has to be 
a dependence. There has to be a, a devotion. Uh, but there also must be a desire. There has to be a desire. Go all the way back to Exodus 33. I'm going to read several verses. We skipped over this when we were looking at the Lord telling them that, they, that, that He was going to uh, no longer lead them, to send an angel. But I want you to see this. In verse 7 it says, And Moses took the tabernacle and pitched it without the camp, far off from the camp, and called it the tabernacle of the congregation. And it came to pass that everyone which sought the Lord went out under the tabernacle of the congregation, which, which was without the camp. And it came to pass when Moses went out under the tabernacle that all the people rose up and stood every man at his tent door and looked after Moses until he was gone into the tabernacle. Verse 9, And it came to pass, as Moses entered into the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar descended and stood at the door of the tabernacle. And the Lord desired, or excuse me, and the Lord talked with Moses. And all the people saw the cloudy pillar stand at their tabernacle door. And the people rose up and worshipped every man in his tent door. The tent meeting or the tent of the meeting, was not the tabernacle. I know it says the tabernacle right there, but, and God had already given the direction and, and the blueprints for the tabernacle, but it was not going to be the place of worship that was going to be right in the, in the, the middle of the tent. It gets a little more confusing because at some point, uh, the actual tabernacle is called the tent of meeting, and so it's just a little bit of confusion there. But this was a place that was outside the camp, in a sense. The, the, the people of the, the nation really was still under the threatening judgment of God and he was not going to be right in their presence. And so Moses had to set this tent up in a different place. He had his own private tent meeting. So the tent meeting, or the, the tent of meeting, it was a temporary tabernacle, which is really confusing because the tabernacle was temporary. So it was a temporary, temporary place of meeting. But what happens here is absolutely stunning. It's amazing. Moses would leave the camp, he'd go to this tent, and he'd walk out, and as he was going, the people would stand and, and say, hey, what, what's going to happen out there? And they'd stand in the, in the door of their tent. And Moses would go in, and uh, the pillar of cloud would come down and rest upon that to show that the very Shekinah glory of God was meeting with him in that place. In a, may, in a way, they were watching Moses as their mediator. He was their representative before God. And when Moses entered that tent and the pillar of cloud would come down, it was showing that God's presence was there. He had a desire to know God, to spend time with Him. If you continue reading in verse 11, it says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face, as a man speaketh unto his friend. And he turned again into the camp, but his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, departed not out of the tabernacle. What are some of the results of him going out to that tabernacle? Let me just very quickly list a couple off. Now, he was not reflecting God's glory at this point. He would just go out, and he was really demonstrating to the people what a relationship with God looks like, spending time with him face-to-face. -face. Now, when you see that word face-to-face, -face, that is a kind of a rhetorical, that's kind of a, 
they weren't not literally face to face. Just a little bit later, the Lord would tell Moses, no man can see me and live. But it's a colloquialism or it's a, a turn of phrase, we would say, to say that they were communing with one another. So that ought to give us hope because what that means is, as a New Testament believer, we can commune with God face to face. We can be in His presence. And although we may not see Him with our eyes, we can be with Him just exactly the same way that Moses was with Him. Moses could go out to that tent at any time and have direct access to God. Unlimited, immediate access to God. And we have that same access now through the Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us access to the throne room of grace. What an amazing opportunity and privilege that we have. We spent all last year talking about it, but I, want to, I don't ever want to go back before last year to a prayerless life that, that uh, I had seen in our church and a lack of prayerlessness. We need to keep those fires burning. And you know what? The, not only did he have, spend time with God, others worshipped God as a result. People would stand there and see that and they'd worship God. I believe when we are reflecting God's grace in our lives, when we are reflecting His glory in our lives, we are going to make a, a bigger impact, a difference in the, life of, of, in the lives of those that are around us, those that God has allowed us to have influence on, those that we brush shoulders with. Not only that, he found a friend in the Lord. Verse 11 says, And the Lord spake unto Moses face to face as a man speaketh unto his friend. I think I shared this last week, but I think it's, it bears repeating. I would always run to Proverbs where it says, There is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And, and that's so true, and that is God. And, and we have a friend in God. But here's what the Lord said in John 15, 15. Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends. What a wonderful truth. We sing what a friend I have in Jesus, or what a friend we have in Jesus. I hope that's true in your life. And let me tell you, if, if you have a desire to know the Lord, there ought to be a desire to spend time with Him, a time in His Word every single day. But if your goal is simply to gain position, or power, or prestige, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to reflect God's glory. You'll reflect your own. And that is a poor, poor substitute. But I believe also that experience in the tent is what led him to be bold enough to ask to see God's glory. It's interesting to me. Moses knew he served a big God. And so he prayed a big prayer. And then he got a big answer. God, can I see your glory? He asked the Lord this. And God revealed just a little bit of himself. And he walked away with his face reflecting the very glory of God. You ever ask yourself, 
how he could not know his face was shining? I think it's because he never asked God to make it shine. That was just one of the results. He had no expectation that it would. He wasn't after outward trappings of spirituality. He was more interested in being spiritual than looking spiritual. We would, good, we would do good to take heed to that. Quincy taught our Sunday school class, the men, last, I think it was last week, right? No, two weeks ago. I don't know. Sometime recently. I may not remember when, but I remember what the subject was. That's better than the other way around, all right? But he taught our Sunday school class, and in a way he compared Moses here with the veil to Samson. Moses had no idea that his face was shining, and Samson had no idea that the Holy Spirit had left him. It was a good message. It was a good lesson. One lost the power in the presence of the Holy Spirit and didn't know it, and one was reflecting the very glory of God and didn't know it. Who do you think you are more like? Have you ever prayed, hoping that someone else would think that you are spiritual? That's horrible, isn't it? It happens. Have you ever been out soul winning, hoping you could win someone to the Lord so that you could tell others and have a testimony of of someone coming to Christ under your uh, ministry to them? So others would think better of you, that you're a great soul winner? Listen, when we do those things, we're just the opposite of Moses. He desired to know God, to be holy. But we want to be known by others and thought of as holy. I want to help you to see if you're standing on dangerous ground. Do you look for recognition when you do something for the Lord? Let me talk to the young men that are training for ministry. You get an opportunity to teach or to preach, and your first instinct is to go find a Barnabas and ask them how you did. Or you may not ask directly, but you start self-deprecating. Men are not exclusive to this. Ladies do the same thing. That lesson was horrible, I know. That special, it was, it was awful. Sometimes I just want to agree with somebody when they say that. I know, right? Just try harder next time. No. If you're fishing for praise, even if you're not asking for it outright, there is a, a false humility, not a true humility that is there. We ought to desire to pursue holiness. We ought to desire that we spent, or excuse me, desire that we know God, to know Him. If we do those things, we're not going to worry about what other people think. We'll not keep looking in the mirror to see if our face is glowing, reflecting the glory of God. We'll be satisfied with that relationship we have with Him. There is joy in walking with the Lord. There's joy in reflecting God's glory to those around you. When you are are discipling someone and you see them do right, and they walk closer to God because of the influence that God has allowed you to have in their life, You'll be elated. I mean, John said that there's no greater joy than to see 
my children walk in truth. What a wonderful opportunity we have to experience that joy. We have that privilege to have influence in the lives of others. But we will never reflect God's glory to the lost and dying world around us if we don't have a devotion towards God, if we don't have our dependence firmly placed in God, if we do not have a desire to know God and not be thought of well by the rest of the world. Where's your dependence? I hope it's not on yourself. Where's your devotion? Is it on the Lord? What is your desire today? Is it to know Him or just to be well thought of by those around you? Moses, what a great, great story. This ought to be on the top ten of those Sunday school classics because it teaches us how important God should be in our lives and how God can use us when we stop worrying about what other people think. Let's pray together with our heads.